none like you. We take great joy in that. We find deep hope in that. And we are excited by that. We praise you that in your uniqueness, you've made yourself known to us. That you've not created us and left us on our own, but that you've revealed yourself to us. Not only have you revealed yourself to us, but you've sent your very Son who took on flesh, who died for us, that we might have life everlasting, that we might reign alongside our King Jesus, that all things might be made new, that your rule would never end, that our joy would never fill up, but would just continue to be filled and filled and filled. We thank you that even now, as we await the return of our King, you're giving us a foretaste of that. That As we gather together with our brothers and with our sisters, we're reminded of what all of eternity will be like. And so fill us with joy in that. We pray this in Jesus, our King's name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. We are doing what we've been waiting on. We are going to the very last chapter in all of the Bible. So it should be super easy to find. Revelation chapter 22. Now it was all the way back in January, January 10th, that we started our journey through the book of Revelation. And that's been some time. And in fact, some of the things that have happened since then feel like they happened ages ago. Um, We, after that, our country inaugurated a new president. That feels like forever ago. Uh, Texas froze over. We had our very own snowpocalypse. Everything shut down. The electricity went out. Everything stopped. That's something that doesn't happen often and it feels like was forever ago. But we were already in Revelation when that happened. The Suez Canal got blocked up by a sideways ship and the world stopped for six days because we didn't know how to get our Amazon packages anymore. That happened while we were in Revelation. COVID's continued to go up and down. Afghanistan has become what it is. There's been a lot of things that have happened in these months since we started the book of Revelation. But one of the things that I've loved is in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the twisting and turning and shaking of the world around us, there's been something stable, something firm, something knowable and reliable as we've gathered Sunday after Sunday After Sunday, as we've opened up this grand vision of God working in his world to bring about his end, there's been something anchoring to our tumultuous year that has happened as we've slowly worked our way through the book of Revelation. And so today, we're going to be looking at the very last chapter of this book, Um, It won't, though, be the last time we're in Revelation. Next week, we're going to do a review, recap, summary, application of the whole book. Since it's been a long time, we want to make sure that we don't move on too quickly. So good news, you do still have one more week in the book of Revelation, but this will be the last week where we read through a whole chapter and think and reflect and pray that God would, in fact, make it so. So hopefully you found your way to Revelation 22. I'm going to pick up in verse uh, verse 1. Follow along with me. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Praise God. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plague as described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says... Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Well, Revelation, if if you've not figured it out yet, here's kind of your last chance to see it. Revelation proceeds forward in a bit of a strange way for most of us. We're used to stories that have a beginning and a middle, and an end, and a really tight, easy-to-follow chronology that works its way through. Uh, But Revelation doesn't quite do that so simply and so easily. It's maybe in some ways kind of like a dance. And so Revelation brings us a few steps forward, gives us a survey of the land. We see all that's before us, 
And then rather than continuing to press on ahead again, Revelation will often take a couple steps back, only to take a few more steps forward. And this time we see the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. We see these themes repeated over and over and over. And each time we encounter one of these themes that we're familiar with, we now see it in a fuller light. We have a better backdrop behind it, and we know a little bit more as we come to it. And so you may have noticed in Revelation 22, as we just read it, there's not really much new there. We've seen all of these themes before. We're just now coming to them again. We've taken a couple of steps back, danced forward a couple more steps, and now find ourselves in a similar place, but with hopefully a much fuller idea of what's going on with these themes. I know it was some time ago when we were in Revelation 1, all the way back on January 10th, but hopefully you were able to see some repetitions from Revelation 1 that we see here in Revelation 22. Um, And you'll notice that there's a whole lot of echoes that just keep finding their way over and over and over through this book. You can see really clearly that John started in Revelation 1 and ends in Revelation 22 with some of the same themes that sort of create a drawstring that pull a nice, tidy beginning and conclusion to this book. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just slow down and look at three themes that come up in Revelation 22. All of these, like I said, we've seen before, but we've not seen them before after all that has come before, if that makes sense. And so hopefully when we encounter these themes, we'll be able to see with a little bit different eyes, a little bit fuller vision, and a little bit deeper hope. And so we're just going to key on three things. You should already know the answers to all of these questions that I'm going to phrase them as, but we'll see them new again this morning. So the first thing that I want you to notice is this. Who is this Jesus who's coming again. That's the first theme I want you to see. Who is this coming Jesus? And I want you to notice something. Look at verse 1. You notice that the angel shows John a river of water of life, bright as crystal, that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice the word throne there. There's one throne. But how many are seated? How many occupy? How many rule from this throne? John tells us, God and the Lamb. Now that should be a bit eye-catching to you. If you keep going, it continues. Look down at at verse 3. We see the throne, one throne again. And again, this throne is occupied by by God and the Lamb. And if you continue, John continues to pile up things that should be a little bit shocking to us about how high of praise he gives to Jesus. From this throne comes forth a face. His people see the face, and John makes no effort to distinguish whether this is the face of God or of the Lamb. It appears that John sees Jesus as fully authoritative, fully worthy of worship, able to speak and judge and do all that we are used to crediting to God. This continues. Jesus apparently feels the freedom to scribble his name of ownership on the forehead of his people. There's no more night. There's no more sun because Jesus himself gives light to his people. Look down a little bit farther uh, in verse 13. 
We see that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has no time before Him and there is no time after Him. He is the Eternal One. And in verse 12, we see that He is the one who brings His recompense, who judges His people. Now, these are lofty claims, and they should strike us a little bit. I want to read you. You can stay in Revelation 22, but I want to read you just a couple things from the Old Testament to help us think through this just a little bit more deeply. So they'll be on the screen as well. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I want you to notice what this says. So this is after Israel's been disobedient. They've been kicked out of their land. Isaiah prophesies that there's a comfort coming. The people will be brought back. And listen to what Isaiah says. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah says there is one God, His name is the Lord, and He gives His glory to none else. You flip back to 1 Kings. This is 1 Kings 8. Solomon has just finished building the temple, and he says this about God. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Solomon says, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth below. You are wholly unique. You are holy, holy. And let me show you one other place. This is Psalm 89. Verse 6, the psalmist says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? The answer would be, nobody. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, with Your faithfulness all around You? And so one of the things that we've been taught to see, to know in the Old Testament, in this dance that we're getting to be familiar with, is we've taken a few steps forward, and in the Old Testament we learn there is one God, and there is none like Him. He is wholly unique. He is wholly worthy of worship. We take a couple steps backwards. The New Testament brings us forward as Jesus becomes incarnate, and we learn something new about this holy God. Though this God is one He exists in three persons. And so John speaks of Jesus as equally God. And so here we have Jesus sitting on the throne. We have him bringing judgment, declaring ownership over his people, calling himself the beginning and the end. Church, behold your God. Your God is the one who came to pay the price for your sins, who took on flesh, who died for you, who was raised that you might have life and who has promised to come again. Your God is the one who rules and who reigns, who is the beginning and the end. Your God is the indescribable, the one who rules and reigns completely with unchecked authority. So church, you have a God worthy of your worship. Second thing I want you to notice, this is a theme that is repeated over and over and over as you look through Revelation 22. 
So the first question was, who is this Jesus who is coming? And the answer is, he's God Almighty, Yahweh himself. When is Jesus coming? Well, Jesus tells us over and over and over again, the answer is soon. Soon. Let me show you something. So keep one finger at Revelation 22 and flip back to the very beginning of Revelation. I mentioned earlier, there's kind of a, a book ending that happens. I want you to see some of this. So in Revelation 22, I want you to look at verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. Now look back at verse 1 of chapter 1. The whole book starts out with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Back to Revelation 22. Look at verse 10. And, God, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. And look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. And so here's the picture we have. John is careful. At the beginning of Revelation, John tells us Jesus is coming, the time is soon. And at the end of Revelation, after a whole lot of things have happened, John says the same thing. The time is near. Jesus is coming soon. Everything that happens in the middle of the book of Revelation is bearable for one reason. It's bearable because the end is coming soon. We can stand up under a lot if we know that it's temporary. And so you remember the letters at the beginning of Revelation. We tend often to pull these out and forget that it's actually part of everything that's going on. But in the letters, Jesus introduces himself, tells something of who he is, and then he gives some praise to the church if, if they have anything praiseworthy. There's a couple that miss that mark. And then Jesus gives them a warning. He gives them a rebuke, and then he gives them an encouragement or a promise. And what makes those letters bearable, what lets Jesus' people hear Jesus' rebuke and respond is the truth that Jesus is, in fact, coming soon. The beasts that we encounter in Revelation, they're mighty and terrifying and powerful. What makes them bearable? Well, they're bearable because there's a single truth. Jesus is coming soon, and if Jesus is coming soon, that means the beasts are on their way out. In the book of Revelation, we see that idolatry is clearly foolish. Why? Because we have the knowledge that Jesus is, in fact, coming soon. This is good news for you and and for me, because we are a people who are prone to idolatry. In fact, that seems to be one of the struggles that John continues to have. You you remember John, apostle of Jesus, writer of the book of Revelation, seer of these visions. 
what does he do? Well, back in chapter 17, remember this vision? He, he saw the harlot Babylon, and what did he do? He got really close to worshiping. He wondered and marveled at the power of this prostitute, and the angel has to snap him out of it. And again, in chapter 19, we saw him bow down before an angel, and the angel had to tell him, stop it. And again, here in Revelation 22, verse 8, John again falls down and worships that which shouldn't be worshipped. The truth that leads us away from idolatry, because we are a people much like John who are prone to that, is the visions that Jesus gives of what is to come. This is one of the things that's so beautiful about our Savior. He doesn't just walk up and say, stop it. He does do that. But that's not all he does. Jesus also gives John these visions, and John relays these visions to us of what is to come. And so it's not only rebuke that Jesus gives his people. He also gives us a captivating image of what's to come and says, fix your eyes on this, because what's around you isn't permanent. I am, in fact, coming soon, and if you keep that in mind, you can resist idolatry. You know, throughout Revelation, Jesus' dead saints are called something strange. Jesus, over and over and over, calls them those who have conquered. I think some of us are tempted to read this as kind of euphemistic language. We're a people who's not real comfortable with talking about death. We talk about people passing on because death is weird and strange to talk about. And so we've got euphemisms there. And so we may be tempted to read this idea of Jesus' dead saints as those who've conquered as kind of a euphemism. But that's not actually how this is working. John's not making kind of a cushion around death so that it's more palatable. John is telling us something true. Jesus' saints who have died are in fact victorious. They are those who've conquered because Jesus will return. Because they are with Jesus, they will return with Jesus. And they have a future and a hope that far outshines, outlasts all that is around them. And so church, when is this Jesus coming? Your king is coming soon. This means that you can be free to be bold. This means you can be free to pray big prayers because your God is a God who answers big prayers, who comes and returns and saves his people and renews all that there is. One of the stories in the Old Testament that has forever captivated me is found in in Joshua. And so this comes right after Jericho is defeated. So you know this story. The people are freed from Egypt. They go through the wilderness. They come into the promised land. They come up against big bad Jericho with its mighty fortress of walls. And God does the miraculous. God does the wonderful. God does the eye-catching. And the walls come tumbling down. The people take over Jericho. And from Jericho they move on. And they see another city on the horizon called Ai. So Joshua gathers his people. He sends some spies out to go look around. They come back to Joshua and they report and they say, hey, Joshua, this is a small city. There's no need to send everybody in. Just send a small group. They'll go in and they'll take care of it. 
Joshua says, sounds like a plan. Sends small group in. They go in, and they get it handed to them. Tail between their legs, they come running back to Joshua. Joshua weeps, cries out to God, tears his clothes, and begins to wonder, Joshua tells us, whether they should have even gone into the promised land at all. God wakes him from his sorrow and says, there's a problem. The problem is there's sin in the camp. You need to remove the sin, and then you will be able to conquer. And so they do this. Achan and his family are removed from the camp. They're killed. And God then promises Joshua that you will now conquer the city I. Now, here's what's interesting. Once Joshua is given the promise, I would expect, at least what I would do, is you just rinse and repeat. You now have the promise. God says you're going to conquer. Just send the same group back in. Let them conquer. Why wake everybody else up? Why do all these other things? Just do what you did. You've got the promise of God. But that's not what Joshua does. Instead, Joshua rouses the whole people. He gathers them together, and he says, I've got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. And he splits the people in half, and he sets half along the trail in hiding. He takes the rest of them into the city. They pretend to fight against the city, and then they pretend to run away as if they've just been defeated. And on their way down the path, the ambush comes out, and I is captured. Now, here's the question. Why all the creativity at that point? Right? Like, why not be creative if you don't have the problem? Why does Joshua get creative once he does have the promise? And the answer seems to be this. When God promises that he will act, that's not an excuse for us to be lazy. That's the inspiration, that's the encouragement, that's the help, that's the support that we need to be faithful. And that seems to be what's going on here in Revelation. From beginning to end over and over and over, we are told, your king is coming soon. And what that should do in our hearts is not cause us to take a back seat, sit down, and wait for everything to happen. This should push us forward to be faithful, to endure, to be bold and courageous because we know that our king is coming soon and when he comes, he will judge, he will set things right and all that is wrong will be fixed. Jesus' soon coming is not an excuse to sit idly. It's the encouragement to be bold, to be faithful, and to endure. And so church, when is your king coming? Soon. Soon. Who is this king that's coming? He's the Lord Almighty himself. When will he come? He will come soon. The last theme I want you to see once again in this chapter is what will happen when this king comes. We started this actually last week. We saw new creation. We saw things being remade, but I want you to notice how it continues here in Revelation 22. So in verse 1, we see this glorious throne. We talked about that earlier, and from the throne flows a river. And in this river is the water of life, 
and alongside this river is a tree. Kind of a, a weird image where the tree seems to cover both sides of the river. And this tree, we're told, is the tree of life. It bears its fruit 12 times a year. Unlike most trees that we're used to, we don't have fruit for one season and have to store it up for the future. This tree, every month, is giving us new fruit. And even its leaves are valuable and useful. The leaves uh, bring healing to these wounded, broken nations. Now, what's interesting here is this sounds both a lot like and a lot not like the Garden of Eden. Right? You, you see the similarities? In the Garden of Eden, there was these rivers, and there was a tree of life, and there was also a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's not here in Revelation 22. You notice also what followed the garden in Genesis 2 was the slithering serpent. And the serpent woos Adam and Eve into sin. God shows up and God begins to dole out curses to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. But there's something unique and exciting here in Revelation 22. Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Why? Because God dwells there. And where God dwells, there cannot be this unchecked chaos and sin. This is a vision for you, church. Jesus is coming soon, and when he comes, his goodness will have no end. There was uh, an old hymn writer named Isaac Watts wrote a song named Joy to the World. You know the song. One of my favorite verses in it, he says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. Right? No more Genesis 3. No more let thorns infest the ground. Why? For he's come. And what has he come to do? Watts tells us he's come to make his blessings flow. That sounds like a river here in Revelation 22. And how far does this river flow, Mr. Watts? He tells us, the Bible tells us, this river flows as far as the curse is found. Everything that Satan and his minions have attempted to establish and set up, in an instant, the river flows through, and all of that is made not And Jesus' new creation is made. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Set your eyes on that, church. And outflows this river from the throne... And from the throne, we see there's no need for a sun or for a lamp. Why? Because God's light shines forth. And God's people finally get to see God face to face. Not like Moses, where they had to see his back. Not like the rest of Israel, where they have to stand behind a curtain outside of the tabernacle Now God's people get to see God face to face. And you know, there's something 
true that happens when you behold something. When you behold something, you become like that something. This is one of the reasons idolatry is so bad. It's a problem that we worship not God, but a continuation of that problem is we become like that thing that's not God, and we become bent in on ourselves and selfish and crooked and depraved. But here we finally see God's people see God face to face, and you know what happens when you see God face to face? You become like God. Isn't this what we were taught to expect in Genesis 1? You remember this? God makes humanity. He makes them male and female, and he makes them in his image. And he gives them a task. They're supposed to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts on the earth. But instead of being as God's image, the humans instead seek to image another. And they decide to take their image after the serpent. And sin comes in, and sin causes all kinds of chaos and destruction. But notice what happens here in Revelation 22. God's people see God face to face. They are made like Him. They are given now the capacity to do what we've always been made to do, to be God's image bearers in the world, to rule and to reign. And you notice that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 5. The night is no more. They don't need light from the lamp or sun because the God is because God, the Lord God is their light. And what does that lead to? It leads to Genesis 1. It leads to they will reign forever and ever. That's what we're looking forward to. We're not there yet. But there is something that is true. You see, the future has invaded the present. You and I, as Jesus' people, have something unique. Jesus, when he left, you remember this, he sent his spirit. He's made us new. We are the made new people of God still here in the world to be Jesus' ambassadors around us. And so we don't have this in full for sure, but we do have the Spirit. And you know what that means? It means in some degree you reign even now. And you might ask yourself, what does that reigning look like? Look down at verse 17. While we wait on Jesus to return, what is the Spirit at work doing? He's at work wooing, asking, pleading for Jesus to come. And is it any surprise that the Spirit-filled people of God would be doing the same thing that the Spirit of God is doing? See, that here's the Spirit and the bride. That's you, that's me, that's the church. The Spirit and the bride are united in a single task. What are we doing? What does reigning look like right now? I was pleading for Jesus to come. Come, 
says the Spirit. Come, says the church. Jesus responds in verse 20 and says, Surely I am coming soon. You know who gets the last word? Jesus' people have the privilege to respond to Jesus' promise by saying once more, Come, Lord Jesus. You see, Revelation as a whole is meant to fix our eyes on the coming of Jesus. Because once our eyes are fixed on Jesus' coming and what he will do and who he is, everything takes on a whole new appearance. Idolatry is resistible because Jesus is coming. Jesus' rebuke is bearable because Jesus is coming. Jesus' people have boldness and a work to do because Jesus has given us his spirit and he is in fact coming soon. So join me in praying alongside the spirit that Jesus would in fact come soon. Jesus, you you rule and you reign even now. Even now as the world around us refuses to acknowledge your good kingship, that you are the rightful ruler of the world, you have filled us with your spirit. And in doing that, you've given us the courage, you've given us the endurance, you've given us the determination to continue to cry out, come Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would leave us restless, that you would leave us discontent, that you would leave us frustrated until that comes so that we might not be fine with the status quo, but that we would be a people who continually look forward to your coming and live in light of that. And so Jesus, do your work in us, we pray. Mold us into your image. Fill us with your spirit. Leave us eager for your coming. And Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus.